inspired the writers of Scripture, living and present with us now. That person of the Godhead coming to rest, abide, dwell with us. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts to you now, to your work. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take a seat? Today we are looking at the Gospel of John again, chapter 4. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'm a, a friend of Rod and a friend of you all, I guess, the amount of times I've done this. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you again. It's a privilege to be able to share from God's Word again. Um, and I wanted to carry on a little bit from some of the other sermons that I've done, which I realise probably makes it incredibly bitty. Um, and I'm sure Rod is much better at putting together his sermon series. But you've got me for the next three weeks. So maybe we'll build uh, a little somewhere and today will be the kind of start of that. But we're looking at John 4. Now, um, previous times when I've shared with you, we've looked at some of the chapters leading up to this. So I think it was the last time I spoke, we looked at Jesus turning water into wine and what that meant as a sign of who God is and a sign of the kingdom. Um, and I know that I've also spoken with you guys about um, how that linked in with Jesus' cleansing of the temple and what that says about Jesus, what that says about us. We've also spoke about Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman and true worship, true worship being us who worship God in spirit and in truth. Um, also, in amongst those stories, we have the story of Nicodemus, which is a really, really interesting story. Um, but we're going to jump into the next sign, the second sign in the Gospel of John, uh, which comes in chapter 4. Um, I'm going to start at verse 46. Probably starts a little bit earlier than that, a couple of verses earlier, but we're going to start at verse 46. So he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. There's an initial reading of that text that, um, that is a beautiful message that I think can really speak to us about the power of Jesus, about his authority, about the fact that actually Jesus starts off by, by being a little bit critical. Oh, you're just looking for a sign. And this is a continuing thing in the Gospel of John. We've spoke a little bit about before, about people coming and seeking after signs and, and Jesus wanting faith to be rooted somewhere else, which we're going to come to a little bit more. But Jesus responds in this way, and the centurion, he doesn't, um, sorry, the official doesn't debate with him. He doesn't kind of try and plead with him or say, actually, you should do it 
because of this, like we might have uh, experienced elsewhere in the Gospels. He just says, Sir, come before my child dies. And Jesus, out of his compassion, responds. And actually, that speaks a lot of Jesus' healing power, of his authority, that he can just command sickness, he doesn't have to touch it. It speaks a lot about Jesus' compassion, that even when he's questioning the motive of some of these people pushing to them, of the the selfishness, maybe, of people asking for these miracles, he still is moved with love and devotion. And it's probably something in that that could speak to some of us today, that actually it isn't about your proximity to Jesus, how much you push in. It isn't about the greatness of your faith. It isn't about the conferences you go to and the speakers who lay hands on you. It is all about God's mercy and his character when it comes to when it comes to healing, when it comes to him responding to our need in the way that we call out to him. And we can draw encouragement from that in his authority, in that actually isn't dependent on what we do. And there's loads of teaching on this, and there's loads of probably quite contradictory teaching around as as people approach different Bible passages about about healing and our role within it and our role within prayer and how how we pray. And you might have been taught certain models You might have been taught that you have to have a certain faith. And yet this is one of those stories where Jesus, without laying a hand, without the person who's being sick having any faith at all, he just responds. And actually, from this healing, we see this incredible response where this royal official and his whole household come to faith. Beautiful. What a beautiful passage. What a beautiful saviour we have. Jesus with his power to heal, that is just as true and just as alive for us today. With his heart to heal, with his compassion for our situation, our circumstance, which is just as true, which is just as alive for us today. But on a second reading, this story is here in the gospel for a very deliberate purpose. And the purpose, I think, is Jesus talking about two locations. So I've called today's sermon, location, location, location. I don't know if that's still a TV show or not. Um, I don't watch enough daytime TV, obviously. But, um, because actually location is quite important up to now in the Gospel of John. Um, the first verse we read, Jesus back in Cana where he turned the water to wine. So there's something about Jesus' infamy in this location, right? He's known for what he's done. But Jesus has gone from there to the temple, has had this encounter with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, then has had this encounter in Sychar, has had this encounter uh, with the Samaritan woman, has had this encounter in totally the wrong place where all of these Samaritans come to believe. And there's a real contrast between Jesus' encounter there and Jesus' encounter in the temple, right? We've got this, the temple, the center of faith, the center of what God has been doing in and through Israel and its history is a place of conflict. And yet the people who Israel are in conflict with, Jesus goes there, and what happens? There's an overwhelmingly positive response. And then we see Jesus come back to his home turf. And in verse 44, Jesus uh, prefaced his uh, encounter here by saying, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. A prophet has no honor at home, he says. So Jesus is in the right place with the wrong reaction, whereas before he was in the wrong place with the right reaction. What's that about? Some of it's tied in a little bit with who this person is. Um, 
The basilikos is the word in the Greek, a royal official. Here in, in this version of the Bible, it's just translated as official. But it's the word basilikos comes from um, basileia, kingdom. It's, it's the word for kings and kingdoms. So who is, who is this guy a servant of if he's a royal official? Well, in this area, it's Herod, right? It's Herod Antipas. The same Herod who took his uh, brother's wife, confusingly called Herodias. Now, if I was choosing a wife, I'd probably at least choose a wife with a slightly different name than myself or get her to change her name. Um, who John, the baptizer, goes to confront and then it all goes wrong, right? This is that Herod. Wow, what a dark figure this is. So this royal official comes from totally the wrong place. These people who were ruling God's kingdom, Judea, on behalf of the Romans, who were building towns uh, and cities and monuments to the emperors. Uh, Herod Antipas built Tiberius in, order of one of the in uh, honor of one of the emperors. So this was a guy who was kind of playing fast and loose with the story of what was going on with God's kingdom and God's people. In fact, the people probably around in Cana and in Galilee and in Judea were, were waiting for Jesus to have a confrontation with this Herod. We're waiting for Jesus to kind of turf him out and get rid of him. And yet here we have an official from that monarchy coming and saying, Jesus, heal my son. Heal my son. This passage has lots of... Um, Lots of echoes elsewhere in the scriptures. I think the most obvious, and I stumbled over my words before, was uh, with Luke 7 and Matthew 8, when Jesus heals uh, a centurion's servant. You know that story? Remember that story? It's a similar story where a centurion, um, slightly different in Matthew and in Luke, but a centurion essentially has the same encounter. So someone who is an official on behalf of the Roman Empire asks Jesus to pray for someone who is not there. And... In both Matthew and Luke, the centurion's faith is commended. In fact, in Luke, it's commended really strongly. And Jesus says, I have not found faith like this anywhere in Israel. This centurion, this foreign warlord, seems to have more faith than God's own people. Some people actually wonder whether this story is the same story. Um, whether the centurion found in, the, in Matthew and Luke is the same as the, as the royal official here in John. It's a little bit odd. Uh, in Luke, it talks about his slave, and the word is doulos, to describe the one who the centurion has to be healed. Um, in Matthew, he uses the word pais, which means uh, child or little one, and we see that word pais in this passage here in John 4. But clearly, in both those stories, whether they're the same story or separate story, and there's clear, strong links between the two, there's a similarity between the two, there's something about faith and there's something about faith in an unexpected location that isn't just commended because Jesus doesn't say, wow, you have faith even though you are here. He actually says you have faith greater than where I would expect it to be. Faith can sometimes be in the most surprising places. See, we would expect faith to be found at, amongst the religious people gathering in the temple. We'd Expect faith to be found with Nicodemus, the religious teacher of the law. We'd expect faith to be found not in Sychar, but much more in Cana or in Galilee, in God's people, right? And 
that's probably quite similar for us. I wonder, as I was praying and preparing for today, I wonder where we find faith. Do we find enough faith in the church? Do we live our lives as the people of God with faith? One of my friends who's a, a vicar of a church talks about being a practical atheist. About worshipping God but never making any life choices that need God to come through in a dramatic way. That we can live in a way where we say we believe in Jesus and we go to church, but we don't pray for the sick. We don't expect great things. We don't try the supernatural or try and live for the kingdom. We don't expect God's spirit to do something dramatic in our own lives and in our workplace. We don't expect the least and the last and the lost and the most broken and hateful and wrong people that we know to be transformed by grace. Do we have faith? Or is Jesus going to find more faith outside the church? Is he going to find more faith out in the world? Is he going to find more faith in people of other religions calling out to God? Which might seem like a really dramatic thing, right? But I know so many stories. I've got a guy in, in my church at the moment. He's currently installing our Wi-Fi for us everywhere who became a Christian in Iran from a total Muslim background, but was seeking after God, seeking after God, and then found him in a dramatic way in Jesus. And actually, Jesus found that person, and I find that so incredibly challenging and evicting, because he didn't just go, wow, I found Jesus, I can kind of keep going and add this to my faith. He moved his whole family from Iran. In fact, his wife hasn't even come to faith yet, and he had to convince her to leave Iran to come to England because it wasn't safe because he was so determined that he was going to live for Jesus. Does Jesus find more faith amongst people like that, amongst Muslims seeking after God, than he does in the church at times? When we look at the church, do we see a people of faith? Do we see a people of expectancy, asking God to touch and move? Do we see a church that asks Jesus to heal, that believes in the authority of Jesus to change situations where he's not even present? Do we have that? challenges me as much as I hope it challenges you that thought but then there's another thing about the location of faith it's not just that Jesus finds it within someone who isn't within the neat natural boundaries that expect it it's not that Jesus doesn't find faith within God's people it's that actually Jesus questions where that faith originates from where that faith has come from Jesus says unless you see and there's this parallel that Jesus draws between those who want to see the signs and the outward works of Jesus and then here, this centurion, who Jesus just says, go, and he goes. He believes and he goes. And from that, his whole household is led to faith. And we can draw some really strong parallels in that. I think of um, the lepers who were healed by Jesus. Remember the ten lepers that went out? And how many came back? One, right? Actually, there were people who experienced the love and the power and the healing of Jesus, but don't respond with faith, don't respond in the same way. In fact, actually, this is the first time we hear of someone experiencing Jesus and then their whole household being saved. This is the first time we hear about that. That's a a line that almost seems like it's lifted from the book of Acts. But here we have it. The royal official the one serving 
the big bad dude, Herod Antipas. So where does that faith come from? Actually, Jesus is talking about two different types of response to God. The response of seeing something of the goodness and the response of hearing. That's totally in line with scriptures, right? Romans 10, 17. Where does faith come from? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of God. Actually, the, um, the origin of our faith should be a response to God's word, should be a response to Jesus, the living word, being spoken into our lives and into our hearts. That actually isn't on the external signs. And this passage finishes with, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came, when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Makes me wonder, what is this sign about? What does this sign reveal of God's character? Because Jesus is clearly talking, not about doing displays of power so that people would believe he's God, but actually signs that reveal something of the kingdom to us. There's something about the inclusiveness that Jesus is speaking to us about here, that actually sometimes our boundaries need to be a, bit, a little bit different, that there might be people outside of the people of God who have more faith than those inside the people of God. And we hear that challenge today. But actually, I think Jesus would be speaking to us about seeking after his voice, not just his works. And I wonder how much, as a church, we're really seeking after the word of God. I mean, what, what a simple message that I could bring to you today in our little 20-minute sermon. Are we seeking after the word of God? What a challenging sermon. What a challenging message. Because actually we're surrounded at the moment in church culture with podcasts and words and books and blogs and tweets. We're surrounded by conferences and events and worship songs. We're surrounded by experience and miracles and supernatural power and outpouring. And is this the seeds of revival? And I think a little bit in 2018 in the church, we're, we're looking at this dysfunctional world that we're in and all the issues affecting the church. And we're waiting for the signs. We're waiting for the, for the miracles. We're looking a little bit for the supernatural. And you know, I'm a, I'm a raging Pentecostal. I believe deeply in the power of Jesus. I believe in his, in his healing power and I've seen it. But I've been really challenged this week by someone who I've been discipling who came to faith in an incredibly profound, supernatural way. And I had probably one of the hardest conversations that I've ever had with anyone in my life last week when he told me, do you know what? I just don't want to be a disciple anymore. It's just too much. I just, I give up. I want to go back to my old friends and to my drinking. I want to go back to drugs. He said, I want to be the next Charlie Sheen, not the next Jesus follower. Oh, it hurt. I'll tell you what, that hurt. Any of you who've discipled someone, and I hope that's all of us, will know that pain, that frustration, I'm hoping this is one of those, you know, one step forward, two steps back, but he keeps getting up and going again. I'm hoping this is just a dark week in what has been so far a radical story of grace. 
But actually, there's also a part of me that goes, how much was his faith based upon the word? How much did I, in my discipleship, in what I was passing on to him, how much did I pass on the word to him? And how much did I pass on signs? How much did I want to pray for the supernatural, for the spirit to change him? And yet didn't challenge him with the word. Didn't challenge him with the discipline, with the instruction, with the devotion, with learning to follow Jesus' voice for himself. Not just constantly ask for Jesus to break in and do the signs. Do we have a signs or a hearing-based faith? I was talking to Rodney, he was telling me about a Sunday sermon here recently, talking about Hebrews 6. Those of us who have tasted the heavenly gift, how can we turn away from that? Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of faith, the knowledge of salvation. And in those, both those passages, Hebrews 6 and 10, talks about how we then we re-crucify Christ. What a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God is how the passage in Hebrews 10 finishes. I just want to urge us today to root ourselves, to root our faith, to root our discipleship of those around us, not in the flashy signs, but in the word of God, in knowing Jesus' voice and obeying him. What do you reckon? Do you think that's what God might be saying to us today? Does that hit home for anyone? Or am I just preaching to myself? If I'm just preaching to myself, do you know what? I'm okay with that today. I feel like that was a message I needed to hear. Let's stand. I'm going to sing a worship song. We're kind of about the end. So I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll pray a prayer of blessing. And if you need to go and get back to work or lunch or both, uh, then you can go. But if you want to stay and worship with me, then, then please do. And we'll sing a song and declare God's words over our lives. Does that sound all right? So let's stand together. May you be blessed, people of God, sons and daughters of your heavenly Father. May you be blessed, not just by the fruit of the kingdom, not just by the gifts of the Spirit, not just by the incredible work of the finger of God, of his mighty outstretched arm, but may you be blessed by the true and living word being spoken into your lives. May you be grounded in the scriptures. May the living word himself, Jesus, make his home in your heart and may it bring about the fruit of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.